This is no small part. No small part. No small part. This is no small parts. I am Brittany Brewer. Uh, <laughs> um, first, thank you so much for making some time to talk with me today. Totally. Um, it's so funny. It would have been so much harder to schedule, like, not during a pandemic. This is Maura Kraus. I, I can't fathom it. Um, it's, this has been, yeah. Um, but I did want to say, because I almost wrote you the e this email back, but then I didn't because I didn't want to send what I felt like would be a very, very weird email. Which was an email just about like how much I admire you and how like so cool I, I thought you are and were like the first time. I mean, I knew about you before I before I met you. Um, not in a weird way. <laughs> that sounds so weird. Um, I thought, I mean, I thought Orbiter 3 was super cool. I thought, like, playwrights creating things was super cool and people helping them do that. So I was, like, looking into how that became a thing. Um, that being said, I'm not sure if you remember the first time we sort of met, which was in the world of, um, Brendan's play, Imaginary. Yeah. Um, when I was dramaturging, and I was probably... I mean, I was definitely, like, so quiet then just because, like, of how cool I thought you were and how much I, like, wanted to be, like, a good worker with you when I was so, like, shy. Oh, you were great. No. It's, like, so funny to me when people tell me they think I'm cool because I'm, like, I, my internal experience of myself is very awkward, so I constantly come away from things and I'm, like... I said some okay things, but mostly I was just really awkward, so it's just, like, funny. She is an award-winning director, creator, and producer of new work. Uh, do, did you ever meet Anya? Mm -mm. She was a really, really awesome performer in Philly for a while. She was in um, Safe Space, which was this show that sort of me and a couple of the Orbiter playwrights yes. made right as we were getting started. Yeah. She once told me people are, are afraid of me. And I laughed so hard, I, like, almost shot beer out my nose. Like, I thought it was such a funny idea. Um, but she, as it turns out, she was she was right, but just the idea of it. So, But I loved working with you on that. That was a weird, weird little process. That was interesting. On today's episode of No Small Parts, Maura talks about her experiences with several valuable mentors, how her work as a producer has impacted her work as a director, and prioritizing self-care and care for her artists. Cheers. Yeah, well, I'm, it is very kind of you to say those nice things. And also, like, I think you're wonderful and I'm really impressed with a lot of the work you do too. So oh it's God. just mutual appreciation. Uh, what are you drinking? I, was about, I am drinking, um, I'm drinking current cider. Um, and they have a cider called Bees that's like lightly flavored with honey. Yeah, really I know nice. that one. Yeah. Have you ever been to Hale and True? Yes, yeah. So good, so good. Do, do you drink cider? Well, so I actually am mostly gluten-free these days. I started having like some crazy digestive stuff about a year and a half ago, mm. um, and cutting out gluten really helped. Um, but Courtney Rigger, who is the production manager at the Arden, who's an mm -hmm. awesome human being, when I was um, working there in the fall, she was like, you know, you can still drink certain Yards beers, but actually they use a type of Clarix yeast um, huh. that you that 
takes all the gluten out enough to be at, at the level that like even a celiac could in theory enjoy, yeah. although all celiacs experience and symptoms are different. Um, and I was like, no way, because all of the gluten-free beers that I tried were just, like, not Gross. that good. I mean, they weren't bad, but, like, I was yeah. a craft beer girl. Like, Ugh. it was really dark. And as it turns Different. out, there are a couple of Yards beers that, even though they're not labeled gluten-free, like, I can totally tolerate. So I was going to ask. I thought you were drinking, I thought it was a beer. It is, yeah. Is it Yards? It is Philadelphia Pale Ale. <laughs> but yeah, I like owe Courtney for telling me that. I think she told me opening night, and I just owe her for telling me that, like, so, so much. All right, so here's something I definitely don't know about you at all, which is, how, what was your gateway into theater? Um, I mean, I've been literally doing theater since I was, like, in the third grade, I think. Um, I'm one of those kids. Um, so I did, like, theater camp in the summers and then I always did the class play and actually when I was in sixth grade I was so mad that there wasn't going to be a class play because my teacher told me she couldn't find one that like fit with the history because we always tried to sync up the class play with whatever our like history and social studies module was that I wrote one um, and convinced her to let us do it so in the end I ended up writing and directing the sixth grade play about Ellis <laughs> Island it was like very bad I found it the other day and I was like wow <laughs> but you know a bunch of sixth graders are yeah. performing it so who cares no <laughs> um yeah so I actually and and then when I was in college or when I was in high school I acted all the time and then when I was in college I acted and directed um and I was like looking over your questions yeah. I actually did a good amount of producing, which I didn't really realize. I wasn't really thinking about That's that I was so totally a producer in college. When, so. did, when and how did that get started? So you, you were an actor when you started, yeah. too. Ah. So many of us. So many of us. <laughs> I love that, though. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. How did you... Did you go to school for theater? No. Um, okay. No, I went to Penn, actually. Mm -hmm. Um and I ended up graduating with a double major in English and East Asian languages and civilizations with a focus on Japanese because I was convinced I wanted to go get a PhD in, in like Japanese literature and, and wow. become a translator. Um, and it's a long story, but, but suffice to say that uh, after studying abroad in Japan, and sort of like coming to the end of my college time, I realized that it was difficult to be in Japan, which is a wonderful place, but um, there is, it, it's very hard to be like a woman there, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. Um, and then also I just realized that like the thing that I'd been doing of my own free will for my entire life was theater. And that if I graduated and like went off to some PhD program, I would stop doing it. And that just felt so wrong. And so I was like, I'll just try it. I'll just try it. I can always stop. Like, I'll just try professional theater and see what it's happens, fine. and I can always bail. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Oh, my gosh. So how did you... You were acting then and directing while studying in um, different departments, and you also began dabbling in producing? Well, so now you're about to find out my dirty little secret, because you know me as a new play person, right? Yes, For the most part. yeah, I do. Um, so when I was in college, my first semester, I was actually like quite depressed. It was very weird mm -hmm. to be at college. Um, and my roommate, who became one of my closest friends later, but at the time we were a little fractious, mm -hmm. she actually saw an audition poster for the Underground Shakespeare Company. Okay. And I was like, you should go audition for this. And I did, and I got, like, a bit part. 
um, but I really liked the people. They were so eclectic. And one of the cool things about USC was that it actually wasn't, it was um, run out of Harnwell College House on Penn's campus, but it wasn't part of Tacky. So it actually meant that people who weren't students could be part of things. So we had like oh, some cool. local weirdos sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually my, my like closest friend was a high school student, um, like a year younger than me who joined USC. <laughs> so I ended up spending like four years working with this company that did pretty much Shakespeare or at least like Shakespearean era plays. Um, and my last year with them, I signed on to become their Nigel, which for reasons too long to enumerate was their like president. Okay. Um, and I was like, I take this job really seriously. And I moved us from Harnwell College House to Roden because I felt like it was a more hospitable environment. And I got us a storage closet and um, a little bit of money, as I recall. And that was all like such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, and, and but it was producing. I mean, yeah, like being the Nigel was essentially running a, a very silly, scrappy, extremely low resources company, but it was a company. And they so. were doing like a show or two a year, all Shakespeare. They did three shows a year. So they did the they did a show in the fall, a show in the spring, and then actually like in um, mid September they did the fortnight. Okay. Um, which was like we rehearsed for two weeks and then did it outdoors. Um, and that was always like a comedy. And yeah. So then your senior year, you, you helped or you leaded sort of the production of three different shows. Yeah, and actually I really can't remember what mm. they were. I think yeah. the first one actually, and this was the beginning of a lot of insanity, the first one was when I, or no, the second one. I don't remember what the Fortnite was, but the second one was when I directed. Mm -hmm. um, so I directed and produced, just like why? <laughs> but then I kept doing it, so just why? Um, and then I think actually the show after that was The Revenger's Tragedy by Sir Thomas Middleton, which mm -hmm. I remember I also acted in um, <laughs> because the 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 bastard role the like sexy um adulterous one yes there was there wasn't a, a man to play that part so mm -hmm. i got myself some facial hair and, and played that part because the director <laughs> yes. was like i don't know what to do and i was like i'll do it <laughs> which in its own way is a kind of producing to be like yes. oh you don't have what you need i'll give you what you need <laughs> yeah it was, yeah, it was oh. very silly and very fun. I can't really speak to the quality of any of those productions, no. but the people were wonderful and we had a great time, so. So what happened post-college, theatrically? What you mean to of, make me a new play person? Yeah, what kind of work did you begin making or trying to get involved with? And then how on earth did you get from that to producing new plays? Well, I, on, a, on a whim, actually, my last my last semester at Penn, I took a playwriting class oh, cool. um, with P. Seth Bauer, who I mm. believe PYP knows of. Um, and I had such a good time talking to the other students in that class. Like, mm -hmm. my own writing, which again, I also found recently, was pretty bad. Um, very much about, like, whatever was going on in my life at the time. I yeah. wrote a whole short play about wanting a hedgehog as a pet. Like, it was not, not ideal. <laughs> Yeah, and how they're illegal in Pennsylvania. I was very sad. Um, but I found that I really enjoyed talking to the other students about their work. Cool. 
And that was sort of when I learned about dramaturgy. For more on dramaturgy, listen to No Small Parts, Episode 2 with Hunter Robinson and Episode 3 with Aaron Washburn. Um, and when I learned that... And then, and also, Seth, um, the, the reading list for that play, there was stuff we absolutely had to read, and then there were sort of, like, suggested other stuff, and I read mm-hmm. all of it. And I remember sitting in my window senior year, having just read Blasted by Sarah Kane, and being like, I feel like throwing up, that play was so upsetting, but I literally didn't know theater could do that. Mm. Like, yeah. And it was yeah. such a bizarre feeling, because I was angry, I was so angry at the play, and I was, like, angry at Seth for putting it on the syllabus. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was so touched and was like, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this experience. Um, And so I started to really be curious about who was writing now and what was being written now. And so that class kind of threw me into both being interested in dramaturgy and um, just like the state of contemporary American playwriting and and British playwriting, actually. My first, (laughs) some of my first loves were British playwrights. Um, Yeah. And then so I ended up with, um, with a very kind recommendation from Seth Mm -hmm. getting, um, uh, an apprenticeship, what did they call it? Assistantship at Woolly Mammoth in the literary department. Okay. And about a month after I got to the literary department, the literary manager left. Oh. And so I, the, this like doofy 22 year old, ended up being this like ersatz literary manager communicating directly with agents and playwrights. And I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Holy and also smokes. I was so scared, constantly <laughs> so scared. Holy um, so, so that, but that wow. kind of just really sparked my whole like interest in knowledge of um and passion for supporting new plays yes like I read so many plays in that office that I wanted to produce I think I would drive uh, Howard the, who was the artistic director a little crazy because I would just constantly be advocating for completely messy plays that would, <laughs> would have been terrible for the company to produce but I was like I love them and we should do them <laughs> How did you get from Penn to Woolly Mammoth? Like a bunch, of, like like just googling, like looking into things and. Yeah, I just um, when I was when I had the sort of like. Um, strange idea that maybe professional theater was a good idea or an an idea. Let's just say mm-hmm. an idea. I started looking up apprenticeships. Um, That's smart. And just applying to sort of as many as I could. And and I was constantly telling myself, if I change my mind, I can just tell anyone that follows up with me that I've changed my mind. Um, So I applied to a ton. Um, I think I was, I think I, I can't remember, but I think the Arden actually reached out to me after I'd already taken the Wooly job. And I remember being like, oh, should I toss over Wooly? And then I was like, no, 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 get, get out of Philly, get out of Philadelphia. Um, but I also got an internship that summer at Samuel French, um, the, the play publishers. So actually, like, Wooly is what really kicked off um, my, my new play kind of focus. But working at Sam French was also a big part of it. <laughs> I remember we had this, I think he was still high school at the time, there were a couple of sort of interns or apprentices over the summer, and one of them was this high school boy, and they sent him to Sarah Roll's house to get the approved manuscript of uh, the vibrator play, and they sent him because he wouldn't freak out about her. The rest of us would be like, hello, uh, uh, so uh, thank, thank you, right? And he was just like, yeah, I just got this manuscript from this lady. It was great. He was great, actually. He was a good kid. Yeah. So, so I just, yeah. I did what most pen kids do and like applied to eight million things, yeah. um, and then went with the ones that seemed the most interesting. And were you at Woolly for like a year? 
ish. Yeah. Like so the assistantship, I was like, my title was literary assistant, and I did mm -hmm. that for a year. Um, part way, part way through, John Baker came on, who was a really mm -hmm. incredible new play advocate and dramaturg. Um, and I learned so much from him, and also it was such a relief to have him take over. I was like, oh, this is how you do all of this. This is how you do all of this <laughs> yes. well, and with focus, and tact, and grace. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, so I actually stuck around, even after my official assistantship had ended, I actually yes. stuck around and worked in the Wooly box office for a while, cool. and assistant directed um, the second production of A Bright New Boise by Sam Hunter um, at Wooly, which was... A difficult experience um, in some ways, but I really loved Sam, the playwright. He was really, really a great human being. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about both what to do and what not to do. Was Sam Samuel French after that, before that? Mm. Before that? Samuel French was in the summer that I was like fresh out of college. So, cool. yeah. Yeah, and while I was in D.C., I was making a relationship with this Baltimore-based company called EMP Collective, which was a multimedia company, but did um, had their feet in a lot of theater. And I remember having this moment sort of shortly after I'd directed, or I'd assisted on Bright New Boise, where I was like, okay, so I either moved to Baltimore because I have connections there and I'm yes, like commuting yeah. there all the time and yeah. there's no scrappy theater in D.C. that I can get my hands on, or I go back to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I never, like, I was always so curious about the Philly theater scene, but I didn't really have time, because I was doing a million things, to, like, see anything anywhere except maybe the Arden and the Wilma, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I <laughs> talked Willie into getting me a bunch of free tickets to Philly Fringe as a scout. Um, for them, which, which is a totally serious, though, yeah. they, they were really um, focusing, focused at that time on expanding their bookends. Um, they'd had like the Neo Futurist there and Second City, um, but they were also really interested in Pig Iron. Um, they were really interested in a bunch of Philly companies. And I was like, okay, I have all these free tickets. And also I think I'm just going to move back there. <laughs> um, which made sense because my, my partner at the time was from the Philly area and he's okay. sort of uh, like, he's, he's just like a this area boy. I think mm -hmm. I was like, well, let, let's just try it. And I ended up doing a second apprenticeship at Interact. Is um, that like the Interact apprenticeship yeah. as is? Yeah, cool. yeah. It, it was a little different then. Um, but I, I remember Seth telling me I was overqualified for it. And I was like, I don't care. I need a foot in the door and mm -hmm. I'm going to learn different things at this size of a company than I am at Woolly Mammoth, which is a totally, totally different thing and a totally different um, industry scene, right? Washington, D.C. is so, so different than Philadelphia when it comes to the arts. And also, it's funny because the season I joined Interact, I wasn't super pumped about their season. I remember it was the season, and I brought this up in my interview, and they still hired me, which I think speak, does speak well of them. It was written by all white men. Um, and I remember, I remember ringing that up in my interview and being like, I gotta say it! <laughs> I just gotta go. Um, but but prior to that, they'd actually done plays that I'd wanted Wooly to do, but Wooly would never do. That's cool. And and the 2020 commission program, and like there were all these things about Interact that made me really excited. So I sucked it up and worked a lot of hours at my day job and uh, did another apprenticeship, which not everyone can do, and I feel very lucky that I could. Yeah. I mean, holy smokes, though, too. You're probably, like, you're working, like, it, was it still a, like, air quotes, part-time apprenticeship then? Yeah. But you were still probably working like 
full time-ish hours for that, among other Yeah, <laughs> well, so, one part, right, like, sometimes when shows were up, it was, it was almost full time. Um, yeah. But I had a really good day job at the time, so it ended up being possible. But. What was the most valuable part of the Interact apprenticeship for you? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, in a lot of ways, I credit Interact with being able to run Orbiter 3. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I could break apart anything in particular. Um, I will forever sing the praises of Annalisa Van Arsdale for letting me ask her questions about the budget and, mm -hmm. and for teaching us about grant writing a little bit and about donor cultivation. Like, I learned a lot just from sending basic donor recognitions. Yes, yeah. I mean, Annalisa wanted them out the same day, like, and, and the way that they were phrased and the way that we were careful to see how people wanted to be referenced or listed. I just, I learned a, a ton of that kind of stuff from her. And, and because of the way the apprenticeship is structured, I ended up learning a little bit of every department. Yes, um, yeah. And so that, yeah, that ended up being pretty huge when I ended up running a company. Like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sort of, yeah, <laughs> on, on many fronts. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's the most valuable. I think just working in like a small, with a small staff in a, in a, in a sort of not too scrappy, but, but medium scrappy kind of theater company. Yeah. I mean, I imagine like seeing folks have their hands in multiple parts and how to pick up when things fall it can be very useful. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting too to see a different version of artistic director behavior. Right, Howard at Woolly had a very different job than Seth in some ways and, and exactly the same job as, as Seth in other ways. Um, but Seth just definitely approached it differently and yeah. Um, and, and also Interact just kind of talks to playwrights differently. There wasn't a full-time literary manager. Um, I mean, it was Kitson, but she wasn't full-time. And, and like Wooly had his own literary department. Wow, yeah. <laughs> like three-person literary department. It's pretty incredible. Um, yeah, so I think just just learning how to how to make a company work. And Orbiter 3's contracts to the end were based on Interax contracts. Mm -hmm. yeah. That alone was so helpful. So valuable. <laughs> yeah. Where did you where were you drawn post Interact apprenticeship? Well, as is my way, I actually stayed there. Um, okay. because <laughs> so when I was at Woolly, um and NPN debuted the producer in residence uh, program, and the f NNPN refers to the National New Play Network. The National New Play Network is an alliance of professional theaters that collaborate in innovative ways to develop, produce, and extend the life of new plays. For more on NNPN and their Producers in Residence program, visit www.nnpn.org. One of the first people to get it was the incredible Ronnie Pinoy. Do you know Octopus Theatricals? No. You should look into them if you're interested in producing, creative yes. producing. Um, but Ronnie, Ronnie went on after the residency um, to, to work at Octopus Theatricals with Mara Isaacs, and they're just an incredible independent creative producing entity. 
But at the time, Ronnie was one of the first people to get the producer in residence position. And I thought she was super cool. Like, I yes. thought she was so cool. And I can't remember exactly what her project was, but I think it had to do with it was a reference book or a guidebook for how to go about evaluating um, and considering book-in productions. Wow, yeah. And that was, like, mega cool to me. Like, she knew about the devising world, and, and like, she could talk to people. She just was really cool. But so I had that program in my mind, and because um, things were going pretty well for me at Interact, I approached Seth and was like, I think we should apply for this. I think we should apply for the, the next round, and mm -hmm. I think we can get it. And sure enough... Um, we wrote an application and, and we got, I think that was the second, no, that was the third round of it in the end. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get a second year of the residency, which they give occasionally. Um, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah. And so that also was like a huge part of learning how to produce and, and a huge part of what went into Orbiter 3. I actually met the Orbiter 3 playwrights through running Philadelphia New Play Initiative. I don't know if you ever came across that. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> so that was something that Seth started by himself, I, gosh, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe? Okay, Sorry, yeah. Seth, I don't remember. <laughs> um, but one of the things we wrote into my proposal was that I would take that over. It had always sort of been under the arm of Interact, but Seth had basically been doing speed dating between playwrights and directors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the idea was to like connect people interested in new plays together. And I took it over, and one of the first things I did was a self-producing panel. So I invited a bunch of folks who did self-producing, including, um, gosh, Bruce Walsh and Chris Davis, mm -hmm. and I think the Power Street folks, because mm -hmm. Erlina was a fellow apprentice of mine that first year at Interact. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> and Doug Williams and Emily Acker came up to me, and I never met them before, and they were like, oh, hello, we're playwrights new to Philly. That was cool. I think Emily might have called <laughs> me Miss Krause, and I was like, war. <laughs> um, but, so, but that's one of the ways that I got connected with, with them. And under the auspices of new of, of um, Philadelphia New Pillay Initiative, I also started this sort of quiet campaign to get to know all the local playwrights in Philadelphia. So I would send these emails that was just like, were just like, hey, I have heard of you. I don't really know your work. If there was something you felt comfortable sending to me, I would really love that. And if you have something you feel comfortable sending and getting feedback on, I would love that too. And I would provide dramaturgical like thoughts free of charge if you want them. That's cool. And and a bunch of people took me up on it, and it was really great to just like read my way through the Philadelphia community and kind of see whose voices I got most excited about. That is that is such a cool thought and idea. I, I think you you probably know this, but very few playwrights, when you ask to read their work, are like, "Hell no! What's wrong with you?" <laughs> yeah. So, um, what else did the the residencies consist of or look like? Was it sort of um, like a structure your own, ex sort of like extended project thesis ish yeah. style thing? It was a little bit structure your own, which was occasionally difficult. Um, mm -hmm. Right, you're not a you're not a full staff member at a place. You have to work on a project, and at the same time. Uh, there's no definite that you're going to stay at the company, so it can't necessarily be a project that needs you to run. Um, so I ended up doing a lot of expanded audience engagement events. Um, the two of the ones I'm most proud of are around Uncanny Valley, which is a play by Thomas Gibbons. Um, he's a very nice man. Mm -hmm. um, 
But for that play, which is about an AI and, and like a robot and the scientist who helped create him coming to form a friendship, we actually managed to bring down Bina 48, which at the time was the most lifelike robot. And you could actually sort of have a conversation with her. And one of the ways that her intelligence was created was by um, and people anywhere could chat with her. And so she would sometimes have a completely normal conversation. Other times she would say really creepy, scary shit. Um, but her her handler, so the guy that kind of tended to her and kept her when she wasn't yeah. doing um, when she wasn't doing appearances, he brought her down. He was really lovely. I remember having dinner with him and Seth at this Thai restaurant near Interact. And then the next day after a matinee, we did a post show discussion with Bina Forty Eight. And it was, it was so cool and so, so crazy. And you could tell audience members kind of wanted to get a rise out of her, which was actually really cool because it means that they're engaging with the idea that she's unknowable in some way. So that was really awesome and exciting. Wow. Yeah. And then when we did Jen Silverman's The Dangerous House of Pretty Mbane, we actually managed to bring through a coalition with WAR. WAR, or W-O-A-R, is the Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. Please note, Mora is about to contextualize a play she worked on, Dangerous House by Jen Silverman, and she speaks briefly on corrective rape. If you would like to skip forward, jump forward one minute and 20 seconds. Um, the incredible South African activist Ndumi Funda mm -hmm. over to Philadelphia, and she's this amazing woman who... Um, this is like getting really into the weeds, but mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of corrective rape in South Africa. No. So that's where men rape women who are suspected of being lesbians to sort of teach them that they want men, mm -hmm. right? A worse way to... Anyway. Yeah. Um, but so Ndumi actually set up a safe house for women because mm -hmm. after the worst, like one of the worst things about this is that after corrective rape, a woman's family like wouldn't even take her in, right? It was this sort of mark of shame and so Ndumi was this really intense and definitely definitely had experienced a lot of trauma um, person and she came over and she she spoke to us and had like some incredible and difficult stories to tell um, but that was a little bit what the play was about mm -hmm. is a woman who tried to create a safe house in South Africa for women who'd suffered this um, so it was a little based on Ndumi and it was really cool that she could come but that boy I never want to do that again, like getting her visa and like figuring out flights and figuring out how I could talk to her when she was in South Africa, when she huh. often had not enough access to, yes. to telephones and to Wi-Fi. Yeah. It was it was really crazy. That's Yeah, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, that's a kind of producing, right? Yeah. I mean, that is essentially producing this one humongous event. Um, that might not look like theatrical producing, right? But is. Was the NNPN producers in residence position at Interact Theater Company full-time? No, um, okay. it was part-time. Cool. Um, and I was still working my day job, which mm -hmm. was really useful. And then I was also trying to start finding a way to do freelance art here and there. So actually, the second year at Interact, um, we were launching Orbiter 3. For more on Orbiter 3, listen to No Small Parts Episode 3 with Aaron Washburn and Episode 12 with Kat Ramirez. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So right after my Interact, my second year of, of the producer residency at Interact finished, we produced um, Moonman Walk. How did all of that begin after Emily and Doug approached you? 
Well, I met Emma Goidel mm-hmm. also. I can't remember quite how. I do remember that Annalisa recommended I meet her. But she was in India with her partner, and I was just like, whoa, this person is the coolest person ever. <laughs> Which is true, but but I definitely had sort of my own, my own like, whoa, moment. Um, but so I ended up meeting all the three of them sort of separately, and we all ended up creating relationships as artists and getting excited about each other. And they came to me and they said that they wanted to write a Fringe show together. If you want more on the Philly Fringe Festival, listen to episode one of No Small Parts with Ange Bay. Um, which mm-hmm. ended up being Safe Space, which was this this strange play that the three of them wrote about LARPing that I really, really loved. <laughs> um, but as we worked together on Safe Space, um, we realized that we really just connected we it was a it was a good dynamic and they at the time were watching the 13p documentary and they sat me down in a coffee shop at one point and were like okay we want to do what 13p did and we want you to be the 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 producer 13p was a collective of 13 mid-career playwrights who collaborated to produce one play by each member of its collective for more on 13p Visit 13p.org, numbers 13p.org. And I remember saying, that's a terrible idea. I have no experience. You should ask Ed Sobel. <laughs> like, Ed is an incredible artist and could handily produce, but also like did not want to spend all his time producing a bunch of emerging career playwrights. And they were like, no, we don't think that we should ask Ed Sobel. And we're asking you because we don't know what you're doing. So it's okay if you don't know what you're doing and we'll figure it all out together. Um, yeah and then so we then we were like okay so three playwrights is not quite enough Mm -hmm. and um, we want to invite more people and so we just started reading as many plays as we could get a hold of and trying to learn about other Philadelphia playwrights Um, and James and Mary were just so easily people that we were all incredibly excited about I mean I think the first thing we read of Mary's was um, Marcus Emma which eventually ended up producing but we were just like this play is literally on fire. It's 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 so great. So yeah, and then we asked them, and they both were kind enough to say yes. Um, did Orbiter Three ever um, produce readings of plays? Um, we did a couple of workshops. We did a couple of like surreptitious workshops. Um, the one I remember most clearly being for Emily's play, "I'm Not My Motherland." But we also did a workshop for Breeze Smoke as well. But yeah, but none of it was public facing. And it was absolutely about like each playwright asked for what they needed with their play. And those two playwrights were like, well, what I need is a workshop. So Mm -hmm. was there an invite only audience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very slim. Not a lot of people. Uh, but I did produce readings as part of uh, Philadelphia New Play Initiative. Mm-hmm. We did this sort of excerpt festival, I think two years in a row. Wow. So when I first started theater, designers and people would tell me, like, oh, I can't remember that show. And I'd be like, how could you not remember a show you did? Like, what's wrong with you? They're all such beautiful, precious flowers. And now I'm like, I don't fucking like, remember. How long was that? Exactly. I'm like, I don't know what that was. <laughs> what would you say has been your most memorable experience producing, like a, a reading or like a staged reading, whether it's... Um, a reading. Yeah. 
I'll, well, I'll get, I don't know if it's the. I guess it is the most memorable because I, I have trouble remembering them. Mm. Um, but last spring, so at the end of the um, inaugural year of New Pages, which is Azuka's local writers group that I um, created when that Kevin and I created when he brought me on um, to work at Azuka, we did this little like excerpts reading, and so all of the playwrights shared like a 15 page excerpt from the play that they'd been working on over the course of the year. And that was like, it was one event. I've produced series of readings, right? Like I've produced more than one reading in, in a weekend or whatever. And, but it was so stressful. It was like last minute actors and like, who do we get for this? And can any of these actors be in multiple excerpts? And like, how do we mm -hmm. most make this efficient? Like I can't have 35 actors sitting on the stage. So some people are going to have to double. But it was this kind of logistical craziness. And then we're probably 15 minutes from the, the time of the event. And I realized I've completely brain farted about lighting. And so we're still in the fluorescent works. Works or work lights refer to the high intensity lights that are used by technicians when they are working in the space. They are not usually used during performance. I think we were on Simpatico's set for um, Cry It Out. So we're still in the we're still in the works, and it just looks so bad. I mean, you've seen works; they look so bad, and I'm just completely freaking out because I used to know how to um, operate a light board when I worked at Interact, but mm -hmm. they're all different, right? All mm -hmm. light boards are different. I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to operate this one. Yes. So I yeah. called Mike Inwood, who's a local lighting designer and a friend of mine, and I was like, Mike, how, <laughs> how do I do this? And he was like, Oh, I'm actually on my way there. And I was like, Cool. And he was like, I'll get there, like probably right about when it starts and I was like not good enough I need you to talk me through creating a, a, a wash for this stage because mm -hmm. I don't know this I don't know the, these cues like this isn't my show this isn't Azuka's show and he did he like talked me through how to get like a light look sort of by trial and error on this stage and I remember and at the end he was like now you're a lighting designer and I was like you make it sound so easy but we got we got a light look up thank god and that oh was sort gosh. of the most memorable like like, I've done all this work, and now it's about to look so sophomoric because I forgot about how to light it. It's really rough. I love that. I love that because everyone who came probably had no idea that I was a thing that no even idea. happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. But I think, like, I mean, I'm sure you have a similar story. It, it, that sort of last-minute yeah. producing, I'll figure it so out, I guess. Cool. If you were talking to younger artists, what would be like your three non-negotiables of producing a reading? Like these three things must happen, mm. but at least if I have these few things. I mean, to produce a reading, ultimately all you need is actors, printed scripts. I kind of firmly believe that because some actors are comfortable reading from a device. Um, but not all of them. And also, especially if you've shared multiple drafts with an actor, you absolutely have to print the one you want them to read. So actors, printed scripts, and chairs. I mean, my, my heart attack about the lighting of this Azuka event aside, ultimately readings are a chance just for a playwright to hear the text out loud. And I think audiences know that, even audiences that aren't as... I don't know, familiar with, with new play development or, or with readings. I think that 
even they sort of sense on some level that this is really about the text. And so, yeah, get, get good game actors. So let me be specific about the actors. Get good game actors who are going to be excited about the text and who aren't going to be upset that it's just a reading and, and don't have props and, and who are going to be really able to engage with the words on the page and, and what the purpose of this is. Um, print their scripts for them because also that's just courteous yes, and then put out put out some chairs and then hope that half of them will be filled and then you'll be a happy person maybe yeah. a third of them yeah and if it's more then that's awesome um, as a producer why get involved with helping mm. to produce a reading what's interesting to you I think they're a really good way to learn the role that is producing mm -hmm. um, because there there's almost as much hiring trouble right you yeah. still have to reach out to all the people you need um, you I don't really believe in holding auditions for readings unless yeah, it's for yeah. a longer process like playpen for example um, but you still have to learn how to reach out to people how to get them all the dates, all the information. You have to learn how to schedule people. You have to learn how to corral people. You have to learn how to market or find someone you trust to do the marketing for you. Um, you do have to figure out a little bit of design elements, as my story illustrates. So it's actually a really good way to just learn about managing people and trying to coalesce resources to support a creative project. And then those skills, I think, are pretty... I mean, you'll, you would need help, obviously, but you can build out from those skill, skills to produce a bigger thing, right? You can add in designers, you can add in materials, you can add in a, a larger burden of fundraising. Um, so much of, of producing, I think, is just about people. It's about doing your best to communicate clearly with people. I feel like you you had to produce like the gambit of budgets, like completely running from like probably like negative ten dollars. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think about our budget for Safe Space, which was a six-actor cast, and I'm like, cool. <laughs> I think it was like $2,000. I can't remember wow. what it was, which is actually a lot, but because yeah. um, we were really we were really committed to paying the actors something yes. that wasn't utterly laughable, so that's where most of that went. Oh. But yeah, so I've produced that, and then I also produced Perfect Blue for Tiny Dynamite, um, which was a Pew-funded project, which had a massive amount of technology. And I genuinely cannot remember the budget, the final budget figure for that, and maybe shouldn't share it, but it was yep. six figures. So. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was a really <laughs> ambitious piece, and it was really yeah. cool. And I wasn't even the like lead producer on that. I was sort mm -hmm. of the producing assistant to Emma Gibson, who's who was their amazing artistic director and producer. Um, but she was also acting, and she was wise enough to know that she should get a producing, mm -hmm. producing support, which was first that's actually true. Emma Goidel. But then Emma moved to New York, um, mm -hmm. and so I sort of took over on, on this Pew project. And I also helped MJ Kaufman produce their Pew project. It was called Destiny Estimate. Yeah. I remember seeing postcards for this. Yeah, and it was, a, it was a beautiful production, but also it was, I think it was an eight-person cast. Um, and it was also a Pew project, which involves a lot of reporting. And I do, in the long run, I wish I had had more experience with that level of budget, right? Orbiter's budget, at, at least at that time, hadn't really gotten quite like Pew level high. Um, 
Yeah, and so I, I wish I'd had a little more experience. Sometimes I wish I could go back to at least MJ and Pew and be like, I could have done this better. How much of your day-to-day -day life now is occupied by producing? What's sort of your artist divide? I feel like there must have been a time where it was like a decent majority. I mean, gosh, I wish I could remember the year because there was a year there, maybe it was, was it 20, I think 2017, I produced constantly. Yeah, it was 2017 because it was Peaceable Kingdom and then it was Perfect Blue. Yes. And then it was Destiny Estimate, so those two were back to back. And then it was the Brownings. And wow. I actually <laughs> lost my mind a little bit, and I had to yeah. ask Aaron Washburn to take over lead producer on the Brownings because, like, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it anymore. And so I, I still supported her and did producerial things on the Brownings, but mm -hmm. she absolutely uh, took it and ran with it. Which, like, thank God, Aaron Washburn is a goddess. No Small Parts podcast episode three features Aaron Washburn. I owe her many, many things, that, that being only one of them. But yeah, so there were some times when producing was, I mean, producing sustained me. That year, producing was most of my income, freelance yes, producing, yeah. which is, um, I feel very lucky to say that, and also was kind of a bad idea. <laughs> so, so now my day-to-day -day life is really only producing when it comes to Azuka. Um, I, I got pretty burnt out. Yeah. After Orbiter 3. Um, a People, our final show, was a huge producing challenge. I mean, we we needed a, we needed dialect help. We needed musicians. Uh, we were in a found space. And it was it was a tricky one. And I'm grateful that both Aaron and, and Kat Ramirez actually came on to help to help with producing a People. No Small Parts podcast episode 12 features Kat Ramirez. Um, but after that, I mean, we were all pretty burnt out, but I needed a big break from producing. I'm actually only now getting back into a place where I'm like, oh, I would freelance produce another project. Um, and I think I could feel good about that. So so after that, it was really just for Azuka. And then I did produce with Doug our friend show of 2018, Bonnie Verifies a Bear. Um, and I, I truly believe that, like, small... Fringe producing is one of the most important kinds, so let's, I won't discount that. <laughs> and you, you are directing now, sometimes as well, in addition to working at Azuka still? Directing is really what I prefer to do. Cool. Um, and last, this past season was kind of a mind-bogglingly incredible one as a freelance director in Philadelphia, um, I feel. I feel hugely lucky to have gotten the season that I got. Um, yeah, and so I would like to continue focusing more on, on directing. I like producing, um, yeah. but I would not want to produce more than one project, like more than one full production a year. Um, and freelance directing is really where my heart where my heart lies. How do you feel like your work in producing has helped you as a director? Oh my gosh, hugely. I mean, <laughs> hugely. There, there are still things I'm like... I wish I understood a little better as a producer so that I could understand them as a director. But I think it helps you work with designers. It helps mm -hmm. you work with theaters that have budgets, right? Mm -hmm. um, this was something that came up when I was directing Man of God at Interact. Our first set design was pretty hugely over budget. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, through no fault of anyone's, right? It's just, it's just the thing that comes up. But I felt so much more able to have the discussion about how the design should change because I had producer brain. 
And I yes, also felt yeah. like I had so much more, anywhere I've worked, I've had so much more empathy for producing considerations because I've already thought about them. Right, so if a theater company says to me, oh, well, this can't happen because I'm so much less likely to be like, you don't believe in my art, which is a totally fair response, I think, if you've yeah. never produced. Um, and so much more like, oh, okay, I understand that constraint. How can we move around it in a way that feels good to all of us? So I think that being a producer has made me, one, a better director to work with, and two, actually like a more creative um, problem solver when it comes mm. to theater. Mm-hmm. What are some of the unexpected things that you were hit with as you produced that you were like, I never thought I would have to navigate this? Man, I mean, there's so many varieties of unexpected things. I remember like a sad one, if you want to hear a sad one, was I remember after some new, new play initiative event, I was by myself cleaning up and I was like, oh, I didn't think about this being a part of producing. This like very sad solo late yes. at night picking up trash yeah. and returning the space yes. to neutral by myself. Yeah. I really didn't think about that. I didn't think I would have to do something like this. And, that, and after that, I always tried to be really careful to have people that I had like gotten yeah. to say, to commit to helping me clean up. I mean, that's such a, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's just such a huge part of producing. And there were still times when I was cleaning up late at the end of a night and was like, this is terrible. Why do I ever do this? But then, I mean, there's all sorts of other ones, right? Um, I remember having to petition to equity to let us have four equity actors on Peaceable Kingdom, but no equity stage manager. When Mora says equity, she is referring to the Actors' Equity Association, which is the labor union representing American actors and stage managers in the theater. Equity actors and stage managers cannot work for non-union theaters unless the theaters negotiate an agreement with the AEA. There is much to consider when thinking of getting an equity card as a professional actor or stage manager, enough so that it may eventually warrant its own episode. And I remember having a conversation with our rep that was like, if you do this again, we'll blacklist you. And I was like, I never thought I would be in danger of being blacklisted <laughs> from equity. And then there's just like silly stuff like on a people, um, we used carpet tape to stick, it was sort of a patch, the set involved a patchwork of carpet. Yeah. And we used carpet tape to stick down all these patches. And so at strike, like literally all we were doing was ripping this incredibly stubborn carpet, carpet tape off the pieces of carpet and off the, off the floor of the church. And it was awful. I mean, we all had cramps in our fingers for days after we were so sore. And I remember having a moment where I was just like, peeling up this this stubborn tape being like this is not glamorous <laughs> which like, producing is never glamorous but that was a special level of not glamorous oh, and there are other actually there are other like really sad ones i don't know if you want to hear more sad ones but i just remembered like brian anthony wilson when we were doing i'm not my motherland his father died during previews I, right or right before previews and it was just like i don't know how to support this That's actor so Actually, during Moon Man Walk, we had to cancel a preview because Jaylene Owens's, I think, father-in-law died. <sighs> and, and it's just like, as a producer, as a human being, it's hard yes. to tell people how much you yeah. care and how much you want to support them in a way that isn't invasive, right? And so as a producer, it's like, how do I take care of my artists? What's the best thing to do here? Yeah. Like with Jaylene, it was good to cancel a preview. Mm -hmm. Brian wouldn't let us. Like he really felt that he wanted to, he really felt like he wanted to come to work. 
I mean, it's important and awesome that you all were having those conversations. Yeah. It's always like a, a very, very big bummer that we forget that we're all people. Well, this is what I mean about producing is, is, is all people, right? From like funders to actors to designers to audiences, right? Producing is just figuring out how you can communicate with all of those people clearly, respectfully, inspiringly. How did you describe your work as producer when other people asked what you did, especially in 2017 when you were exclusively producing? Oh, man, I think I at that point was just like, I'm a theater artist. I do a lot of things. (laughs) I make shows in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's practical. Sometimes I'm literally sewing the quilt that is going to cover the platform in Peaceable Kingdom. And other times I'm putting on nice clothes and trying to convince someone to give us money. If you were going to try and describe producing, what would be your go if you were talking to like younger artists especially? Have you seen that video where someone tries to line up kittens? I I don't know if I have, but I feel like I would absolutely love to see this video. You should find it on the internet, but it's it's just someone trying to put kittens in a line and it just will not happen. Every time he gets, like, one of them in the line, the other one, like, another one, I think there's, like, five or six, just goes out of it. So he's just sort of constantly trying to put them in the line, and I think that's what producing is. It's, like, joyous, right? Because they're kittens. And also it's incredibly exasperating and a little stressful and also feels like it will never end, but also you're working with amazing kittens. And also, everyone else enjoys watching. <laughs> yeah, like the the final product, right? But even the process is people are sort of like, oh, this is this is pretty cool. It's <laughs> great. Oh man, if you had, um, was there any other advice or things you would like to share when it comes to producing? Hmm. Um. Um, but number one is take care of yourself. You cannot be a good producer if you're running yourself ragged. Um, if you know you're going into tech, like if you're, if you're going into a week of load-in in tech where you're going to have to serve as half production manager, half sort of um, HR person. For more on production managers and what they do, listen to episode two of No Small Parts with Hunter Robinson. Then do whatever you need to do to keep yourself going strong. I remember the the week leading up to the opening of a people, I was getting up at 5.30 in the morning and going to take 6 a.m. Muay Thai classes because that's actually when I needed to feel like a, to feel like I had some control over, over my life. Um, so whatever that is for you, try to have some self-knowledge about it and, and do it. Um, there will be 16 hour days and that's okay as long as you're prepared for them and have taken care of yourself in the other times. And then I think the second thing is just always ask like never ask with a sense of entitlement never ask with with expectation necessarily but always ask right always ask that actor that you think is too busy or too cool for you always ask that director that you think would never even respond to your email always ask for help right like Orbiter existed, Orbiter succeeded because of all the people that helped us. Yes, yeah. And if we hadn't asked, they never would have been able to. Yeah, so always ask. And always ask 
ask, like when you're not actively producing, just ask people to talk to you, ask people to have coffee with you, ask people to have like any kind of engagement with you. I mean, the worst they can do is say no. And most of us won't say no. Right. You know, this like, (laughs) um, and then I think the third thing is just good life advice, which is, Oh, never be afraid to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So if someone is like, why isn't this thing here yet? Or, or, or like, what are we going to do? Any, any kind of question, right? Just say, I don't know. And accept that you have to say that and then figure out a way forward from there. Don't try to bullshit your way out of it. Cause that'll land you in more hot water, which mm-hmm. I've learned because there are times when I've been like, Oh, I totally have an answer for that. That is pulled out of my ass and now I can't make good <laughs> on it. Yay. So. Thank you so much for talking with me, Maura. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thanks for asking me. I'm, like, not used to being the super chatty one, but, like, I really took to it, so this was fun. That was Maura Krauss. I am Brittany Brewer. This is No Small Parts. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. You can find No Small Parts on Facebook, No Small Parts Podcast. Instagram at no small parts podcast and Twitter at no small parts pod. For more no small parts, visit our website at www.nosmallpartspodcast.com. <laughs>